0: This week's show is brought to you by Loot Crate, the official sponsor of Enchanted Tiki Talk. Loot Crate is the world's greatest subscription box for geeks, gamers, pop culture, and Disney fans like you. Start your subscription now at www.lootcrate.com slash tiki talk.
1: Vahini me mana, ladies and gentlemen. No flashbulbs, please. Our performers are temperamental and easily upset. Thank you for your cooperation. Oh,
2: look at all the people my goodness you're all staring at us we better start the show
1: rolling wait wait we forgot to wake up the glee club
2: hey howdy hey! and thank you for joining us here on china tiki talk we are your hosts i'm sean i'm alan i'm keith so grab yourself a dull whip pull up a chair and enjoy the show This is episode 80 for the week of May 3rd, 2015. On this week's show, we are excited to talk with an Imagineer who wrote for Walt Disney himself and helped create such timeless attractions like the Enchanted Tiki Room and developed for Epcot Center. In 2001, he was named a Disney legend. We welcome Marty Sklar into the Tiki Hut. Welcome.
1: Hi, Sean and Alan. Happy to be with you.
0: Oh, thank you for so, coming on. Yeah, we're, we're happy to have you with us. We really appreciate it. Um, to, to start off with, um, you know, how did you get chosen to create Disneyland News when you were at UCLA?
1: Well, I was about to be the editor of the Daily Bruin at UCLA, and someone had recommended me to Disney, uh, and, and Walt was looking for someone to put out, uh, to edit a tabloid newspaper on Main Street, and uh, they... They recommended me, and I went in for an interview, and and they hired me. And uh, I went to work at Disneyland a month before Disneyland opened. And two weeks after I went to work, my goodness, I had to present the uh, concept for that newspaper to the Walt Disney. Wow. That was scary.
0: Yeah, No pressure.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What was that
2: meeting like?
1: I was 21 years old and had never worked professionally and was going back to school after the first summer. And believe me, I was scared as hell. (laughs) First of all, I couldn't believe he had the time for this little thing I was doing, which was going to be sold for 10 cents on uh, Main Street, Uh, because, you know, finishing any park, and I've been involved in all 11 uh, around the world, is chaotic at the end, to say the least. And you're just trying to get everything finished before the public is going to come in the next day or so. Uh, This happened to be two weeks before Disneyland opened, but it was really chaos because uh, it had never been done before. And uh, why Walt had time for this little thing was really a mystery to me. And you know what? It it took me a long time to figure it out, but when I did, everything kind of fell in place for me because for for Walt Disney, uh, Main Street was a real town. And at the turn of the century, 20th century, every little town had at least one newspaper. And so uh, what it amounted to was uh, for Walt, having a a newspaper was a story point. And one of the details of all the thousands of details that go in the the parks. And uh, once I got that straight that this was part of the story uh, and everything was part of a story, uh, that Everything fell in place for
2: me. Well, wow, I mean, that's amazing. That's an incredible opportunity to... You know, your, your first job there, writing for you know, Walt Disney himself, that's unbelievable.
1: Well, when I look back at it now, I recently participated in a program at UCLA and a student asked me a question, and I said what I didn't realize at the time was that two weeks after I began my career, the turning point in my career, because if Walt didn't like it, I was out the door and they'd find some pro to do it. And uh, the good one was uh, that he did like it. And uh, I stayed around for 54 years. Wow! So, so when the message that I told the students was, you always have to be prepared. And uh, you, you have to be able to anticipate uh, and, and react to the, the situation that you're in. And uh, being prepared is uh, uh, not just a Boy Scout kind of song, <laughs> uh, it's, it's something that uh, you, have to, uh, you have to think about all the time.
0: When you were appointed as Walt's, uh, I guess, personal writer, what, what sorts of things were you writing for him?
1: Well, I was not really his personal writer. He used uh, a number. For example, he had a, uh, several writers who worked on the lead-ins for television, which I never did. But I wrote uh, most of the print things that related to the park. And, uh, also his messages in the annual report for about four years. And, uh, uh both of those were really, was, were, were really fun and, uh, interesting because, uh, you know, this was a great growth period of the park. Uh, it was, uh, we did it. Jack Lindquist, who was later, he was the marketing, uh, advertising manager at the time and then later president, first president of Disneyland. He and I did a newspaper insert for the LA Times, one in 1959 and one in 1965. And so I, I wrote two or three different uh, messages for Walt uh, about the growth of, of the park in 1959, all the new things that came in, on a rail, uh, Matterhorn, a submarine voyage, uh, and the new Autopia. And then in 65, of course, we were about to bring back all the shows from the New York World's Fair. And uh, the Lincoln Show was uh, opening and playing on both coasts at the same time. So uh, I really got to uh, write about kind of Walt's vision for the growth of, uh, of Disneyland and the future of, uh, of our business, really.
2: Now, what was that, you know, talking back then, I mean, the, the world was... Um Huge back then, and there was Walt had such a huge vision in mind for what Disneyland was going to be. At what point did he feel that, um, like Disneyland itself, you know, everything started cropping up around him? You know, at what point did he feel like he was starting to feel closed in in Disneyland?
1: Well, I think it was, was more than that. It was that, uh, you know, he had, he had done the, the four shows for the New York World's Fair. 1964, 65, and what amazed me when I when I look back on it, I've written quite a bit about that recently, one for Fun World magazine and and uh, for a couple of Disney magazines. What I what astounded me really was that Disneyland was the biggest piece of the company's business by 1959, and yet he put the whole development of Disneyland on hold, and we at Imagineering were all focused on the new york world's fair oh wow and uh we did those four shows the carousel of progress for ge the the uh, magic uh skyway for ford motor company we did it's a small world and we did the lincoln show and yet nothing was going on at disneyland except except for one thing and that was the tiki room came in in 1963 but here's the uh, really a six-year period starting in 1959 for the only thing he added to Disneyland was the Tiki Room. And yet, what we didn't realize was that in all the contracts that he wrote for the New York World's Fair, uh, Disney owned all that stuff. And so all those things were coming back to Disneyland. And at the same time, he was uh, already on the way to to, uh, buying the property for uh, what became Walt Disney World. So in a way, in a very strong way, the New York World's Fair was was a stepping stone from uh, the West Coast to the East Coast. Oh, really? Oh, sure. Wow. You know, uh, you could say, well, the same entertainment is going to play uh, both places. But, you know, he really proved it at the New York World's Fair that uh, the kind of entertainment he was developing at Disneyland, storytelling in, you know, in a variety of different ways uh... was uh, uh... was going to play on the east coast as well and obviously the, the disney shows being four of the five most popular shows at the new york world fair and most attended shows uh... he proved that point and the other right. thing he, he proved really was that uh... he had such a clout with uh... his name had such a clout with the public that it was uh very uh, useful for sponsors to be associated with that name and uh, that was a big step also because obviously the kind of scale that disney does on these projects having sponsorship is a very important uh, part of, of being able to grow business
2: now speaking of the, uh, you know, the World's Fair. The World's Fair has always fascinated me. I mean, I'm only I'm only 39, so I don't haven't I haven't had the experience of the World's Fair. But I live in New Jersey, so I'm I, I know you were you were born in New Brunswick. So, um, you know, for being that close to New York City, you know, the World's Fair has always been. And I'm a Met fan, so you know the the grounds are right next to um, City Field. Now, the the World's Fair just it I guess in a lot of ways, it's just it seems it seems bigger than bigger than the world in a lot of ways. Where you get to, you get to you're getting like the best technology around the world and all these grand ideas that come into one place. That's got to be a fascinating thing, not only for yourself but you know fellow Imagineers and, and Walt Disney himself. I mean, was anything else taken from the World's Fair and 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 brought back to the parks in some way?
1: Well, we all ate a lot of Belgian waffles there. (laughs) that was the most popular thing at the the fair Um, you know the world's fair historically were places where a lot of new ideas were introduced of course that has been superseded by the speed of communication these days you know you really can't say that uh, we're going to introduce something new at uh, a place that takes Four years to build because everything moves so fast these days. The speed of change is unbelievable. So world fairs have kind of lost their cachet. Uh, but in, uh, up to that point, and the New York World's Fair was probably the very last of the, the great world fairs. Uh, and you know, companies and countries poured a lot of money into what they showed the, the public. GM and, and Ford and the, uh, and others, many, many, IBM, they all had uh, great designers and, and uh, great attractions for the public, and, uh, and often uh, an attempt to show something new. For example, uh, Disney, not Disney, but the Bell Telephone Company did a uh, picture phone link with, to Disneyland uh, from the fair, and it was the introduction of the picture phone. Uh, so there were still new things that were being introduced. But it was uh, a place where people came together to see new things, learn new things. Uh, it had a powerful effect for for many years. You go back over the, the history of World's Fairs, and it's quite extraordinary. Uh, but as I say, I think the New York World's Fair was, was probably the last big fair Any-
0: well, speaking of the World's Fair, um, you know, what was the process like uh, creating? You know, it's a small world, and, and those, uh, those uh, exhibits that you talked about. Did you do more work in California? Did 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 everybody kind of relocate to New York? Tell us a little bit about that process.
1: Well, uh, everybody uh, stayed in California uh, because so much of the development was uh, was new. For example, uh, there were capacity things that were developed there the boat ride in It's a Small World, for example, that um, uh, really had a huge effect on the future of Disneyland. Uh, the, the boat ride in It's a Small World could carry over 3,000 people an hour, and that became the basis for the Pirates of the Caribbean boat both, uh uh, attraction and uh, the carousel of progress, of course, could also handle that many people. So, you you had to develop things that, that uh, um, many people, much bigger capacities than had at Disneyland or anywhere else uh, up to that time, in order to handle the on of people that were coming. And that had a huge effect on our business going forward, uh, and of course, it was. Uh, uh, Robert Moses, who was the head of the fair, uh, really worked up, worked hard to get Walt to do Lincoln. And Walt said he, he actually wanted to do the whole Hall of Presidents show because Walt showed it to him when he came out to uh, Imagineering. And uh, Walt said, how can I do that whole show when I haven't even done one human figure yet? And uh, Moses finally... Got the state of Illinois to, to sponsor the show and uh, got Walt to do uh, the Lincoln show, and of course no idea whether that was going to work. <laughs> I mean, it was one thing to do the birds in the tiki room, but quite another to do a human figure, and that was a huge challenge for uh, everyone who was working on it. Uh, so there were it was a big deal for Disney, big new development. And uh, if you think about it also, it was the first time Walt did original songs for uh, attractions, except for the Tiki Room. The Tiki Room was the first show in Disneyland that had an original song. And then with the fair, of course, we did, Bob and Dick Sherman wrote, There's a Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow for the Carousel of Progress. And then uh, that ubiquitous song that no one can get out of their heads. (laughs) You know, at the the D23 Expo last summer in Disneyland, uh, Dick Sherman did a uh, special performance and uh, he started out, before he played It's a Small World, he said, I'm going to play a song now that you either hate me or you love me. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody understood. Yeah, It's probably been sung and performed by more people around the world than any song ever.
2: Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. And it's... if
1: you think about it, uh, the Carousel Progress is still playing at the Magic Kingdom of Walt Disney World. It's the longest-running theater show ever.
0: Yeah. Right. Which means that song has got to be up there with It's a Small World for being just you know the longest playing song, or, or constantly played song, I should say.
1: Yeah. Uh, it's...
0: They changed it up, but... I said they changed up the song there for a period, I think, in the 90s. But thankfully, they brought back the the old one. I like the old song better.
1: Well, everybody did. Um, GE wanted us to change the song when we moved it from Disneyland to... Came from the World's Fair to Disneyland for about five years, and then we moved it back to Florida at their request. And uh, uh, they wanted a new song. So Bob and Dick Sherman wrote... uh, uh, now is the time, now is the best time of your life. It's a nice song, but not what the original was. And it didn't have the intent for the show that Walt wanted. You know, there's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow shining at the end of every day. Uh, that's, that's the, and and, uh, and tomorrow is just a dream away. That's what he wanted to say about the show. And right. the song said it.
0: Yeah, it, it, that song fits the show much better than than the other one. I mean, you know, you you do what the sponsors ask, obviously, so because they're the sponsors. But that that song does have a better feel. It fits the theme to me, I think, a lot better.
1: Well, I have to correct you. Sometimes we do what the
0: sponsors. <laughs> All right. Well, there is that. I, I guess when you're uh, when, when you work for Walt Disney and, and and you you can do whatever you want. I suppose I would do what the sponsor asks, but I don't have that name. So.
1: Well, sometimes you have you know, a lot of times you have to if you will educate the sponsor
0: because, there you go um, we
1: always we always want to uh, end up with a piece of entertainment that we can be proud of and uh, sometimes if the sponsor wants too much of his or her its own uh, material in there you can get bogged down and and lose the, the audience, and so we work very hard to avoid that, and, and to convince the sponsors that it'll be more effective for them if they uh, are softer uh, and not and uh, and more even-handed, if you will.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, taking a step back, back talking about the, the Sherman Brothers again, you know, what was that? What was it like working with them and knowing them? And do you have a favorite song of theirs?
1: Well, I. <laughs> I do. Uh, first of all, they're amazing. And if you think about all the things they did for the park, it is pretty amazing that you hear the um, It's a Small World, One Little spark, so many different songs. They just always hit the nail on the head, you know, right? They, they understood. In fact, one day when we were doing uh um, I was sitting in my office and thinking about what we needed to do, it. and. All of a sudden, the, the light went on, and I said, You know, we haven't done a new song in the parks uh, since uh, Exitensio wrote Grim, Grinning Ghost in 1969. And this was already 1977 uh, or 78. Wow. I, I said, "No, Disney, think about the, the, the films and what the songs mean to the films. It's one of the first things you think about. You go out. And singing those songs and it sticks in your, your head and and it was the same thing with a great big beautiful tomorrow and yo-ho yo-ho Existencio's uh, pirate song so I called Bob and Dick Sherman right away and I said come on in here and let's get to work on some songs for these Epcot shows and that's when One Little Spark came out of it and they did another one which is really my favorite uh, it was for the 3D film we had in Epcot when, when we opened, uh, oh my, I can't think of it. Uh, uh,
0: Magic Journeys?
1: Magic Journeys, yeah, thank you. Yeah. And they did a beautiful song called, called Magic Journeys. So uh, <laughs> Dick is very kind to me. Uh, quite often when we do a program together, he says, I'm going to play Marty's favorite song. And uh, it is, it, it's just a beautiful song. And I, I'm so disappointed that it never caught on in a big way. But part of it is the 3D film was replaced over time and, and therefore it's no longer playing there. But uh, they always hit the nail on the head. And and it was always a, a situation where Walt would call them and say, uh, ask them to come down and, and uh, see what we were doing and, and say, now I need a song that's going to tell the audience what this is about. And that's uh, what they were so good at. They were absolutely brilliant at doing that.
2: So what was it like working um, you know, with Walt himself?
1: Well, he, that was very special, of course. You never got a, a, an attaboy from Walt. Uh, one of the things that we learned very quickly that he wasn't a, somebody who would slap you on the back and, uh, he wouldn't even you wouldn't even get a thank you from him but you would always hear from uh, somebody else usually your, whoever uh, you got your assignments from how, how much Walt liked what you were doing you'd always know uh, besides that we got another assignment right uh,
0: <laughs> yeah. you're still working think, there you must be doing alright
1: yeah I think that uh, he had so much talent around him that he expected them to do Uh, the the, the kind of work that John Hench and and Blaine Gibson and and Harper Goff and Mark Davis and so many others. You know, there was so much talent. I I just felt so privileged growing up with uh, those people because they were great mentors. And uh, one thing I learned and tried to pass on throughout my career they were giving. They were so giving. They would teach you anything you wanted to know. Uh, and all of them were, you know, toward the end of their careers. Well, even when I uh, came up at first, I was kind of a kid uh, coming into that situation. But they they always accepted whoever was put on a project as an equal. And uh, they paid no attention to the fact that You might have been a lot younger than they, or have have certainly had less experience because uh, so many of them had come out of the studio and worked with Walt for many years on uh, all those great films and uh, were um, were changing their careers in many ways. I I think of Blaine Gibson, who uh, loved animation and wanted to continue to be an animator, and Walt called him one day and said, Blaine, I want you to be my sculptor for Disneyland. Blaine said, no, I really love being an animator. And Walt said, no, I need you to be my sculptor. And Blaine spent the next uh, 30 years as our chief sculptor. And he was brilliant because he understood anatomy. He understood how to uh, use uh, the facial expressions and everything else to communicate immediately. You know, there was never any question about what kind of character uh, you were looking at. and. Uh, Almost every one of them had uh, so much knowledge and so much skill. I recently wrote a piece for a new Mark, uh, book out about Mark Davis called uh, "Walt Disney's Renaissance Man." A beautiful book, by the way, with uh, uh, stories by uh, uh, Pete Doctor and, and Andreas Deha and others, uh, Don Hahn, and. I wrote the piece about Mark's work in the parks. What happened was that when Walt took him out of animation and brought him over to Imagineering in the early 60s, he said to well, him, I want you to go down to Disneyland, come back and tell me what you, you think is missing. And Walt came, uh, Mark came back and he said, Walt, what's missing is humor. And if you think about it, the Jungle Cruise was, uh, for example, was uh, straight out of the True Life Adventures. It was a documentary style. And uh, Mark came in and he added the, the bathing elephants and the, the, the uh, rhinoceros running the point of his, uh, the point up uh, the, the uh, safari, uh, driving them up the pole and the gorillas taking over the camp. And all that stuff was uh, the business, if you will that uh, these people understood because they'd done it for years and years in animation. And uh, uh, Walt was very, he was the greatest casting director that ever came along, I think. He understood how to um, put people together in ways that some of us were really surprised at. um, But he always knew how to get um, people to work together to, to go beyond what, uh, any individual could
0: do. So, if there's, you said you got to meet Walt basically on day one, or at least fairly close to day one. Is there something uh, about Walt that, you know, there, there's been, you know, books about him and, and movies and, and, you know, is there something about Walt, though, that, that maybe people don't know that you, if you could just tell everyone one thing about Walt, what would that be?
1: I think the biggest thing that I always, to that day, treasure is that. He, He made me and everybody else go beyond what we thought we could do because he made it clear that what he did last time he was no longer interested in, and he was moving on. And uh, you had to move on with him, and that meant you had to learn more, you had to be um, better at what you did, and uh, you you just had to improve. You had to grow. And uh, uh, that kind of drive, that kind of forcing you in a a way to do better than you imagine that you could do. It's what great leaders do. You know, they hold out a carrot and say, follow me, or uh, or, uh, basically I'll get somebody who is willing to take the risk, take the chance. And that was what he was. He was a great risk taker, buying things that have never been done before, take a chance, and... uh, Uh, that was great because we all grew, uh, and probably went a lot farther beyond what we imagined we would ever be able to do. I thank him for that.
0: He he was a risk taker, but do you think he was a, he was a calculated risk taker or do you think, I mean, he had to know what he was doing,
1: uh, you know? Well, it was a little bit of both, you know, because, uh, a lot of times Roy, um, was very cautious, Roy, his brother. Uh, but after a while, of course, Walt was so successful in uh, these things that he that he uh, uh, became known as a risk taker for uh, the first feature length animation film. Uh, those True Life Adventures were, you know, before uh, anybody was making uh, those kind of pictures. You know, uh, combining it. Animation and, and live action like a Mary Poppins, uh, Disneyland, all those things were, you know, the amusement business was dying in the 50s when Walt, uh, uh developed Disneyland. And he had a vision, uh, for what he thought would, uh, people would like. And I, I, I never had the sense that he did anything because he thought, it would be successful. He did it because he liked it and it was, it was, uh, going to be fun for the public. That really drove him more than anything, I think. Sure, the, the accolades, the income, all that kind of stuff came along with it, but the big thing was, you know, don't, and, and he, I remember one quote, you know, I used to study all the things that he said before I had a chance to write for him. Uh, And he said that you don't do it for yourself, you do it for people who are going to enjoy it. And I think that's what he tried to do his whole life.
2: Right, and one of the biggest risks that he ever, really the biggest risk he ever took was creating Disneyland. Well,
1: I I don't think there's any question about that. Uh, Everybody thought Disneyland was a crazy idea. There was never anything like it. And, uh, you know, some of those early days when could shoot a cannon down Main Street and not hit anybody. A lot of people worried about it too.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I can't imagine a Main Street where you could <laughs> shoot a cannon oh. down and not hit somebody. That's That doesn't uh, happen that way anymore. Not today, no.
2: So what was it like being there on opening day?
1: Oh, that was crazy. That was really crazy. I had a, a two assignments. My first one was uh, actually in in our offices in, in, in the old administration building at Disneyland. They did, while the, the show, the live show, was going on, they would cut away to uh, for, uh, five minutes every hour to a local feed um, on what happened to be on KABC, although Disney uh, affiliated with ABC at that time. And uh, so I was assigned to work with that local group in the morning. And then in the afternoon, I was out in the park, and they said, just help anybody that needs help, particularly in the media. The one thing that I remember more than anything was Fest Parker riding up to me on his horse and looking at my uh, name tag and saying, Marty, get get me out of here before this horse hurts somebody." It was I <laughs> was a mob scene because so many tickets were counterfeited and no one even knew how many people were there, uh, and and no one knew how many people Disney could. Disneyland could handle. And uh, so it turned out to be almost 30,000 people that showed up in a park that could probably handle about 10,000 at that time. But you can imagine the mob scene. All those things that you, you read about, about ladies getting their high heels caught in Adeaf Soto, it was 100 degrees temperature. Uh, wow. And uh, the uh, people thinking Walt had forced them to uh, buy. Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola because uh, the drinking fountains weren't working. And what really happened was uh, there had been a plumber strike that was settled about uh, two days before the park was to open, and Walt had a choice of uh, seeing the toilets or the drinking fountains, and I think he made a good choice, actually.
0: Yeah, <laughs> the, the only choice, really.
1: <laughs> yeah, and you know, <clears throat> when you have uh, a whole cast that had never never had to entertain anybody before. All new people. This was a big, huge challenge. And I remember Bob Gurr, who designed all the vehicles, um, including later on the monorail and, uh, of course, the fire engine and the Autopia cars. There wasn't one Autopia car that was running at the end of the day. Oh, wow. Hmm. That was a big lesson because all of a sudden everybody understood that these parks operate uh, at that time, 10 or 12 hours a day, now, you know, 16 hours
0: a day, uh, and uh, things have to work. Right. So you've, you've had a hand in, uh, basically supervising the creation of, with the exception of Disneyland, pretty much every park, right?
1: Well, I didn't, not originally Disneyland because, as I said, I.
0: Yeah, obviously not that one, but. But every,
1: all the other parks I was involved in, and, uh, um, after the Magic Kingdom in Florida opened, uh, I guess the next nine, uh, I was uh, the creative leader for most of it. Of course, Epcot was the, the biggest challenge. With, uh, you know, I, We spent eight years from the time we started on uh, Epcot in 1974 to when we opened in 1982. And I'll never forget the call I got from Card Walker, who was in the chairman of Disney in 19... Uh, 74 with Walt's concept for a community, the city, Epcot, and he said, uh, just said simply, well, what are we going to do about Epcot? That was the start of uh, eight years of figuring out how to turn that concept into a park.
2: Was it tr- is it true that um, there were two separate models for Epcot, one that had basically just the World Showcase, which was more of a, I guess, uh, the World's Fair type thing, and then the, the opposite side of the rise, and they were just pushed both together, and that's how Epcot was created?
1: Well, that's true. We started out with uh, two parks, wanting to do two parks, and somewhere along the way we realized that we would never get enough sponsorship uh, to uh, be able to afford building two parks. So it was a crucial time, and and one day just before a big meeting, John Hench and I said, "Look, we're gonna let's push these two models together, and uh, we'll make one park out of it." And uh, that's what we did, and that's that's what we built.
2: <laughs> and it's beautiful. It's a great park.
1: <laughs> yeah, it works very well. Of course, we, we did one. We had one other thing. We wanted the entrance to be in the middle, kind of like where it is uh, coming in from uh, where the Yacht Club and the Beach Club and right is now. But when we went to our boss, Card Walker, and told him that's where we wanted to put the entrance, he said, no way, that all these big sponsors, GE and AT&T and, and Exxon, they paid us a lot of money to have the public come in and pass their, their pavilions going in and coming out and we're not gonna change it. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Now one of the the one one of the things that people most you know ask about or wish that happened was the I guess it's the the Rhine River ride in, in Germany. Uh huh. How close was it to being created?
1: Well, we have drawings. Carper's has done, uh, but that's not unusual, you know. We have uh, we did a show about Japan that that uh, uh, was actually done in Japan later. Uh, we and we had a. Actions that we tried to do for uh, Denmark, and we wanted to do uh, a, a, uh, three or four other things like that. You know, you always develop a lot more uh, ideas than than you can use, and hopefully the the best ones come come to the top. Uh, I remember in my book uh, Dream to Do It, I, I uh, told the story about doing the water parks in Florida and we were, uh, we already had Typhoon um, Lagoon and uh, uh, we had three great ideas for another water park and uh, I had them lined up in a conference room for Michael Eisner to review and decide which one we were going to do and he walked in and, and looked, looked at the board we didn't even have the meeting, he pointed at one and said, that's it, and left. Huh. Of course, that was Blizzard Beach. a pretty good idea, right? Right, yeah. But I had to explain why my other two teams, who didn't even get to present their concepts, that was hard. <laughs> but wow. again, it, we always were very used to, as Imagineers, developing ideas, and uh, not all of them get built. Uh, a lot of times, something that you do for... One one attraction or uh, one concept ends up in another concept and uh, everything feeds off everything else because when you're working as a team, uh, uh, that's really um, one of the advantages, that you're not off somewhere working as individuals. Everybody sees what everybody else is working on and uh, hopefully if they have an idea, they'll contribute to it. That's the best of a team organization when you can do that
0: are there any of those projects that you know that i guess that you miss the most you know one that didn't happen and and you just said it's part of the business and you you get used to it but was there one that that stung a little more than other ones
1: oh boy i'm not sure you know (laughs) when you work on different concepts for half a century uh, that's a lot of a lot of ideas a lot of concepts a lot of talented people who contribute. Yeah, you know, there probably are. Uh, if I sat down and really thought about it, but you know, you can't have a, an idea that's so precious that uh, if it doesn't fly, uh, it, it just destroys you. Uh, because there's a lot of circumstances. Sometimes it's timing. Sometimes it's sponsorship. Sometimes it's the wrong, the wrong time to develop something yeah, I'll tell you one. We had a, an idea for a, a, a Dumbo Circus for Fantasyland in Disneyland. And that was one of my favorites because some of the, the ideas that were uh, drawn and sculpted with uh, Disney characters as part of a circus, that really was wonderful. And, uh, yeah, I miss that.
0: Is is that the... Uh, inspiration for you know, what we have at Magic Kingdom now, the Storybook Circus, or is that n- nothing like that at all?
2: Oh, no, it was something uh, very different.
0: Okay.
2: Do you have a favorite project that you've worked on over the years?
1: That's a hard one, too. Certainly writing the script for uh, the Epcot film, Walt Disney World film, that uh, was the last time Walt ever uh, appeared on film, was uh, an amazing... Uh, experience because I had two meetings with him in his office, just the two of us, and I have today seven pages of notes still from wow. that meeting. well wow. He made it so easy for me to write the script because uh, what he what he had uh, what he said in those meetings and what he w- wanted to convey, and uh, that was a hard period because he was really pushing me to finish his part of the script and I didn't understand why and it was because he was going into the hospital and uh, he actually didn't um, see the other part of the script until he came out of the hospital um, because I hadn't finished it yet Um, but his part we were very happy with and he was it took all day on the set to moving around different uh, setups that we did and that was very special spending that time uh, with law. you know there's, there's so many things that I think about of watersheds, if you will, and how we able to, to uh, accomplish something and, and how we worked with the various people around the world and Japan and Hong Kong and, and France and their attitudes. and it's been very gratifying to see and know that uh, all around the world they respond basically to the same thing. Yeah, there are nuances and certain certain cultural things that you have to pay attention to, but basically, people are people, and fun is fun, and Disney is
0: Disney, and, <laughs> and they love us. it's it's universal to say the least.
1: Um, well, you is
0: know, that word, please? Oh well, yeah. Sorry, <laughs> that's, that's a cuss word. I'm sorry. Um, it's uh, I don't know a synonym for that right now, but you know what I meant. Um, <laughs> The way you talk about Epcot, I mean, I think that might be the answer to this question, but is that of you know of all the parks you worked on, which is basically all of them and uh, is that is epcot your is that your baby i guess looking back or is there another uh, of the international parks that that you look back on more fondly Well there's
1: a lot of things about Epcot that I think were truthfully quite amazing that we were able to accomplish that. In the time in the time frame that we had, so many young people had cut their eye teeth on that project. And when I look around the business today, I see uh, Mark Fuller who uh, led Enterprises and uh, Monty Lundy and Technofacts and oh uh, Bob Rogers and BRC Imagination Arts and uh, so many people who started their careers working on Epcot and uh, really. Uh, had their first chance to show what they could do uh, through what we uh, were doing in Epcot. And I'm, I'm very proud about that because it was a launching point for a lot of careers uh, and a lot of people that are still Imagineering that, that helped to create all those uh, things. And, and uh, you know, starting um, with a very different idea, basically, a community but with a basic drive to communicate with people about the potential of things in the world. Um, and, um, you know, it's that Walt Disney uh, dream of uh, there's a great big beautiful tomorrow, uh, and it's all just a dream away. And some of the people we found and we worked with, I, I really was, I was so excited about. You know, Carl Hodges down at the University of Arizona, who helped us with the land pavilion. I remember uh, we, we, had, we did a walkthrough of a scale version of the, of the uh, eventual boat ride, and when we were all excited about it, growing food, you know. Uh, when we were through, uh, Carl Hodges said to me, now, where do we put the bees? And I said, Carl, there's real people coming through here in boats, no bees. And he looked at me and he says, how are we going to pollinate the food?
0: <laughs>
1: I said to Carl, you know what? We're in show business. You're the scientist. You figure it <laughs> out. Know, they, they pollinate all that food in the, in the land boat ride by hand. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. That's the way to do it.
2: I never thought of it before. Yeah, it oh, did. Yeah. Well, that was,
1: that was one of my uh, favorite moments because we came back uh, and I, I had a meeting with uh, my boss, Carl Walker. And he said, Well, what are we going to do for entertainment in the LAMP Pavilion? And I said, uh, Well, Carl, uh, you'll be watching lettuce grow.
0: <laughs>
1: that didn't go over too big. <laughs> but watching lettuce grow is really a great job.
2: <laughs> right. Where do you think in the world it would be the next great place to build a Disney park? Shanghai. Shanghai?
1: It's, uh, can you imagine? building in a place where more people have access to your park. Right. Wow. And that's a tough project. They're, they're going through very difficult times, and, and uh, I think it's going to be fantastic, but it's a real tough job for all those people who are there. And, you know, you see some of these pictures in China with people were wearing masks because of the smog. It's hard. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, one, someday there'll be a park in South America, and I think that'll be fun. Uh, so I, I guess that's the, the next big part of the world that uh, has enough people to support um, an enterprise like a Disney park. But that's a few years away, I'm
0: sure. Where would you think? Like, do you, I mean, the big the big country would be Brazil, but there's so much. Without getting into all of that, there's a lot of issues down there I mean do you think that'd be where they go or do you think another country in South America well
1: you would hope it would be Brazil um, but you're absolutely right there's so many issues with that but you know Brazilians are uh, a big part of the audience at Walt Disney world
0: absolutely yeah I mean it would make the most sense I mean it, it would it would it would go over like gangbusters in, in Brazil but you know, they, they have so many other issues that they have to work out before I think the company could move down there. But maybe one day, like you said, that's you know several years away. They need to finish the project they're on now before they worry about another one, I'm sure.
1: Well, you know, one of the things for Imagineers, uh, I think it would be really fun to be able to be involved in a park in, in a country like that with the kind of... Uh, uh, attitude that people have about entertainment
2: mm-hmm. do you think he's getting back to to Walt what do you how would he be would he pleased with would he be pleased with the um the progression of the company today I mean
0: that's a loaded or, question but
2: yeah I mean at least way the way the parks are going the, the vision of the parks these days
1: well you know I was asked that question probably 50 times at uh, the last couple of years I've I worked And I refused to answer the question. And uh, finally, when we opened Hong Kong Disneyland, somebody asked it in Cantonese. So I had a lot of time to think about it while they translated it. (laughs) (laughs) So I did give an answer, and my answer was, uh, "What would say? What took you so long?"
2: (laughs) That's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, good answer. Yeah, it's not something that uh, you know. It's just something. It's just curious to know what. Your thoughts would be on it, and oh, you just uh, can't speculate about something like that. Because no, you can't. It's really, just, because I'm sure there's things he would love and there's things that he wouldn't. But I mean, overall, it's it's probably something he never thought that he'd see come true when he created Disneyland.
1: Well, the world has changed so much uh, in the in the period since Walt passed away. But but you know, Walt was changing all the time, and that was one of one of his strengths that that. He didn't. Uh, he didn't stay fixed in the in the thirties, in the forties, and the fifties. He grew and he changed, and he he responded to the public and the way the public changed. And uh, I think that was a huge part of why um, people reacted so strongly toward what he did and what he said and, and uh, his readings in television. I always. That, uh, when I looked at, at those that after I, you know, the things I wrote for him, uh, I said, you know what, I'd buy a used car from that yeah. man. <laughs> no, it was trust.
0: And, right. Yeah. Uh,
1: that was a big part of it. People knew that, you know, for years Kodak tried to get him to change the camera that he used to hold when, when they were the sponsor of the show, and He'd come out. He had a brownie camera that he that he liked, and they kept trying to get him to change it. And he said, "No, I like this one," because <laughs> they were selling a different one by then. So, but that was the kind of person he was when he liked something. When, when and therefore you could trust what he said and what he was
0: telling you, if you will. Now, you are a Disney legend officially, uh, but you, you also have a window on what, four main streets, I believe? Is that... I guess all of them, but...
1: Except Tokyo, which only has uh, a couple of names because they didn't want to do it that way.
0: Okay. but So you, you've got windows and, and you've got the, the Disney legend uh, official status. Which one... Do, I mean, do you feel like the window is more of an honor or was it becoming a legend or are they about the same?
1: Well, it's, you know, it's all nice and all... Uh, you know, it's It's all very nice. I I hear from a lot of people, family, more than family, friends, and others I know who, uh, when they go to Disneyland, they say, hey, I saw your window, you know? And uh, I I think that's a very, I think I probably am prouder about that because there's only, the two names on the the city hall there are uh, Jack Linkless, my good friend, so we did so many things together, and particularly in the early days. Uh, and they, and uh, what's really nice about my window is that I actually occupied the office that's behind it.
2: Oh really? Oh, <laughs>
1: at one time, and so that's kind of a nice feeling when I um, when I see that. And and the meaning of those windows, you know, started out. Walt wanted to honor the people that really helped to make the park uh, happen and subsequently we, we made uh, the rule that no one's name could go on it while they were still working and only when you retire and only when the park, the particular park, whether it's Disneyland or Walt Disney World or Magic Kingdom uh, etc uh, only when the park operators and the Imagineers agree that that person's name should go on, on a window, so that's very important, and uh, it really says a lot about the respect people have for you uh, when your name ends up on a window on Main Street.
0: Do you still do you still get to visit Disneyland now that you retired, or you know? And if so, what's it like wandering the park now as a fan, as opposed to wandering the park before as a as a as a cast member? Well,
1: I I was there uh, two weeks ago. I did two programs. um, Actually, on the the day before the 59th anniversary, on July 16th, uh, I did two programs for cast members uh, where uh, they asked me if I would come and just um, make a little presentation and then answer questions, which I did. I I really liked that. And i go down every year and, and talk to their college program. And, uh, I must admit I don't go on, uh, some of the past rides anymore.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, but I, I still love to go with my grandchildren and, and, uh, watch their enjoyment. And I, what I like more than anything when I go to the parks is watching the people. I love watching the people having fun. And that, that says a lot to me. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, just as the vanity thing, I get recognized fairly often by somebody, and they ask me for they could take a picture with me or sign an autograph, that kind of thing. Uh, and that, that's a nice feeling too, that people um, recognize you and all that you contributed to the fun that they're having.
2: But it's also got to be a great feeling, you know, having them enjoy it. Knowing that you contributed to it and that they don't know who you are either, too.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, you know, I like to uh, just sit in the audience and like the, the Tiki Room. I mean, I, the Tiki Room is still one of my favorite shows. You know, it's amazing to me that fifty over fifty years later, that entertainment is still having the same effect on families and and our guests that uh, it did. Uh, when it opens,
2: right. And speaking of the Tiki Room, how do you think that would have worked as a restaurant?
1: Well, as uh, one of my colleagues said, if, if the birds pooped on your plate, you would
0: happy. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> Check, please.
2: Do you have a favorite Disney, a non-Disney project that Ameri- Imagineering had, had worked on?
1: Yes. One day, I got a call from the, a friend of mine who was the the chairman of Children's Hospital in LA, and he asked me if if we would redesign their lobby and make it more kid friendly. And I, I went to Michael Eisner and I I said, Will you let me do this uh, as a lunch project? Um, and he said, Yeah, but you can't spend any money. And I said, Well, how about if I just buy lunch for people and they'll volunteer? And he said, Okay, go ahead. And uh, so that's what we did. I put a group together and we met at lunch. And uh, everybody contributed to the design. And we redesigned the lobby of Children's Hospital in L.A. And it was a joy to be able to do it. And uh, everybody got such satisfaction out of making that lobby more friendly for people who uh, especially <clears throat> siblings of uh, kids who were in the hospital there. Uh, I guess that would be as close to uh, a very satisfactory
2: on disney project as I could come. Yeah, that's a wonderful thing. I've seen pictures of it, and it's, that's, a, that's a beautiful place.
0: And Disney still works pretty close with uh, the Children's Hospital. They do the chalk walk every year.
2: Well, they've
1: now, they, they've gotten serious about um, supporting it, and they do a great job. Local stations, K, uh, ABC stations are very much involved in it, and Disney is a huge contributor to uh, Children's Hospital now. I think that's a thing to be very proud of. The Disney volunteers do so much work around the community. Uh, that, that's endemic. I think that's something that, stems from, from the way Walt started the company, giving back, you know, really not about you, it's about the, the audience, and, and that still carries over.
0: Absolutely. They, they do a lot of good things out there, uh, with, with, and, and not just in California, in, in Florida as well, I, I believe. They, you know, they're, they're definitely trying to be part of the, the community. The
1: other thing I have great satisfaction about is 25 years ago, uh, Buzz and Ann Price and Aaron Disney Lund and my wife and I started a, <clears throat> a program called Ryman Art in, in uh, honor of Herb Rhyman Herb um, he, after he passed away. Now, <clears throat> we're into a 25 25th year and we have programs every weekend uh, for talented high school artists free of charge at Otis Art Institute and at uh, Cal State uh, Cal State Fullerton, uh, and uh, next year we'll have 600 kids every weekend, free of charge, uh, learning to be better artists, and uh, I'm very proud of that. Still the uh, president of the board.
2: Oh, you still are? That's correct. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow.
0: The last one before we kind of wrap it up is... Uh, do you know about the post-it note on the Carousel of Progress that said Marty called once changes? Did you know about that?
1: Yeah, somebody told me about that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's it's one of my favorite little, I don't want to call it a hidden Mickey, but just kind of a little hidden gem that...
1: Uh, you know, you're always looking to improve something or if you see something is not working properly, you just that's what, that's what we do. And uh, if you're if you really want to, you become, it becomes part of your life. And, you know, it's always been, it was always hard for me taking my kids to the parks because I was always looking for what didn't work. Uh, and they were looking for what did work and then the fun. So, uh, you know, it, it's hard because um, you have a different orientation after a while. That's what makes Imagineers so good. That they they live that they live with uh, with a great passion for what they've done, what they've created,
2: and we thank you for being part of that. It's you know, you've given myself and the guys I work with and all the Disney fans memories that just cannot be created elsewhere. And you know we thank you for that. We appreciate what you guys have made. Yeah. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed talking to you. The last thing we have is the, is the Tiki Lightning Round. It's, it's it'll be quick. It's uh, your favorite snack in the parks.
1: My favorite snack in the parks. Oh boy, uh, you know that I forget what it's called, but that at the Tiki Room they sell that Dole Whip or something. Right, that's yep. it,
0: Dole Whip. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like, good answer.
2: Ice, <laughs> ice cream freak. <laughs>
0: good answer. We 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 approve of that
2: answer. Yeah, that's, that's one that's of our favorites. Out, your favorite attraction?
0: It's a small world. Uh,
1: and you know why? It's because if we could get everybody in the world to live that, the words that Bob and Dick Sherman wrote, there's just one moon and one golden sun, and a smile means friendship to everyone, wow, wouldn't that be a great world? Yes. Yeah. It'd be a lot better place to live, that's for sure.
2: Uh, favorite character?
1: Donald Duck, because he was born <laughs> the same year I was.
0: <laughs> He's my favorite character as well, yes. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs>
2: Your favorite uh, Disney movie? Oh gosh, that's a hard one. Uh,
1: Mary Poppins would be pretty close to the top.
2: That's a great film, great movie, great
1: acting, great music. I had the privilege of of working not only with Bob and Dick Sherman, but Sam Lusk and Max Stewart, who did the the uh, penguin uh, series, the penguin sequence with uh, Dick Van Dyke and. They were great guys to work with, and I learned a lot from them.
2: Yeah, it's, it's such a wonderful film, such a wonderful family film, and that's the essence of Disney. And um, the last question is, do you have a favorite Disney park memory?
1: Oh, boy. It'd be pretty hard to top the opening of Epcot, I think. It was, uh, especially with, you know, I've got <clears throat> notes here on my, I, you know, I've, uh, in my office when I, that I built when I retired, in 2009, I, I, I put pinnable walls like we had in the uh, conference rooms at Imagineering, And I have some of my favorite letters on the wall, and I've got uh, two side-by-side. One from <laughs> Roger Smith, who was the chairman of General Motors at the time, and the other from Cliff Garvin, who was the chairman of Exxon at the time. And uh, I remember <clears throat> both of them coming up to me pranking me when we opened Epcot, so,
0: uh, and that, it was quite a dramatic moment. Well, Marty, we, you know, we just want to say again, we said it a couple times, but we, we really appreciate uh, you coming on the show, um, you know, we are we are big fans of yours, uh, we admire all the work that you and your colleagues did, uh, and, and like Sean said earlier, you know, we, we do this show because we love Disney so much, and we wouldn't have that if it weren't for you, so... You know, sincerely, as sincerely as I can possibly be, we we thank you for all the work that you did in your career uh, and and all the work that you do to teach younger kids so that they can take over and take the reins for the Disney Company in the future. So, you know, we we appreciate that so much, and we thank you so much for taking your time out tonight to to talk with us.
1: Well, thanks, John and Alan. Thanks uh, thanks for uh, making sure I didn't totally lose my voice here, too. (laughs)
0: <laughs> and uh, we're gonna we'll put a link up uh, when we post the show for um, for Dream It Do It, which is your book that's out currently. Uh, is there anything else that you kind of would like to promote that that's going on right now?
1: No, that's, so that's uh, that's my favorite, of course. That's uh, four years on and off
0: doing that. Just how long it took you to write it? Yeah, you know, okay. I, was, I
1: was making notes before I retired. And, you know that's that's been a really uh, interesting process for me. Um, speaking all around the country, I mean, I had 700 people at the Chicago Museum of Science and Industry, and 300 people in, in Ocean County, New Jersey. As a matter of fact, gosh, one one day in Sacramento, we sold 500 books, and I, and I had to sign all of them.
0: <laughs> wow! Uh,
1: but what what's interesting is I love. Talking to the people. Uh, there's so many people who like you love Disney and wanna tell me tell me why and and, uh, it, and there's so many young people who wanna be imagineers and that's been a real in, an instructive a uh, time for me to see that all around the country. Joy really. Yeah. Well
0: you you deserve all you, you deserve all of that. I mean you you and all the guys you worked with, you know, we again we just you know you, you you built something that we love and and our, my life wouldn't be my, I proposed to my wife at Disney World and I mean not that I wouldn't have married my wife without Disney but <laughs> that you know that's something obviously that, that's a memory that I'll always have that you helped build the the place that will always be a memory for me and, and I'm not the only one I'm one of uh, of a billion people who have a story that comes from a place that you built or that you had a hand in building, so you know, it's it's it was an honor to talk to you tonight. We really do appreciate that and we're we're just so grateful that you that you came and talked with us tonight.
1: Well thanks, Sean and Alan and good luck. Thank
0: you Thank so you. much. You have a great night.
1: Okay. Bye.
0: That's going to do it for this week. Uh, be sure to check out Marty's book, Dream It, Do It, My Half Century, Creating Disney's Magic Kingdoms. Uh, the book's available on Amazon, uh, BN.com, Barnes & Noble, uh, whatever other local bookstore you have in your town. Um, it's it's available everywhere, iBooks. Um, so go check it out there. Uh, be sure to let us know what you thought of the show. You can comment over at EnchantedTikiTalk.com. You can email us at podcast at EnchantedTikiTalk.com. And you can leave us a message on the Tiki Talk hotline, which is 256 for my tiki that's two five six four six nine eight four five four. Be sure to like us on Facebook, check out our store over at redbubble.com, and of course follow us on Twitter at Tiki Talk Podcast. Lastly, if you enjoy the show, please take the time to rate us on iTunes.
2: And you can find One Minute Disney Dream on Twitter. That's one min Disney Dream and MouseworldVacations.com. And you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Dole Whip Daily and online. At com.
0: and you can follow me on Twitter and on Instagram. I'm at Norman Bates. That's N-O-R-M-N-B. The number eight and the letter S. Thanks for listening this week for Sean, Keith, and our special guest Disney legend Marty Sklar. I'm Alan, and this has been Enchanted Tiki Talk. Aloha. I'm
1: doing okay, but my voice is getting weak, as you can tell. Okay. <clears throat> I still have, can't. I haven't gotten over that uh, uh, cold and stuff I've had. Yeah, I keep you, uh, going until I lose it.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> we don't want you to lose it. Yeah, I don't want
0: to. I don't want to be the reason you can't talk tomorrow. <laughs>